long week away. We welcome you into this week's episode of the Show Before the Show podcast. It uh, it did not feel normal. It did not feel okay. We missed you all so very much. My name is Tyler Mon, and coming to us from Scottsdale, Arizona today is one Sam Dykstra. Hi, Sam. Hi, Tyler. So this is a podcast. Is this live? Or this listening? is um, it's like the new version of radio. Pretty much. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. All right. So it's I haven't uh, done one of these things in two weeks. So right. Exactly. Exactly. You got to get all reacclimated to what this yeah. is. This is radio is dead now, and this is radio. And also, I'm three hours behind what I normally am. Right. Down is up. Left is right. Right. Yeah. Night exactly. is day. None of it makes sense. None of it makes yeah. sense. You were uh, you were even further away time zone wise for a while. I was actually in the time zone where you currently are for a while. Uh, and now I am back here in my current normal time zone and you are in Pacific. I don't get that. Well, you're in Arizona, which just like does its own thing. They're like, we don't need daylight savings. Um, so which, you're, you know, which, I have to uh, say, I'm jealous. Of. I, I've only been here a couple of days. I don't know everything there is to know about Arizona. Um, I'll see how things go here in the next couple of weeks. The baseball has been fantastic. We'll get into that in a couple of segments, but, uh, I applaud them for, for not doing daylight. Yeah. Same. same, you know, like get with the times. Yeah. Not that I, I know yeah. like farming is important and we did it for the farmers <laughs> and it, there is a reason why we did daylight savings at one point, a hundred and fifty years an ago. agrarian society. Yeah. Yeah. And like all the farmers have phones. <laughs> they all got clocks. Yeah. I think those all still work. They have those rooster apps, right? Is, exactly. Uh, of course. R U S T R R U S T R. The rooster app. <laughs> That's actually just a it's a dating app for farm fowl. The <laughs> rooster is. Um, wow, what a start to this episode of the show before the show podcast. We welcome you in to the official podcast of minor league baseball. My name is Tyler Mon. His name is Sam Dykstra. Yeah, a week away. Uh, I was broadcasting the uh the final days of the U23 baseball world cup in Mexico. Sam was out of town as well. Um, but we have reconvened and Sam is in Arizona for the start of the Arizona Fall League, which kicked off play this week. Uh, we're recording this on Thursday, the 14th. Uh, it was uh, just, was that just yesterday that we started playing the AFL? <laughs> it's been a yes. long couple of days. Um, and we're going to dive into a ton of AFL stuff with Sam coming up here in a little bit. Uh, we got a ton of other stuff that we got to get to first. And before we dive into all of that, big thanks to all of you for tuning in to the show before the show. You can get in touch with the podcast, podcast at milb.com. Give us your questions, your thoughts, your comments about the show and uh, wherever you found us, give us a rating and a review and a subscription. And uh, we would be so delighted. And with that, it's time to dive into uh, the 2021 Milbies, which are here. Remember the Milbies? Remember the, the last time you voted on the Milbies in 2019? Well, they're back in 2021 form. That uh, was a very uh, kind of sly Simpsons reference. Remember, Alf, he's back in pog form. Um, the Milby Awards, the best in minor league baseball yearly, uh, has returned for 2021. And we have eight fun-filled categories upon which you may vote, for which 
you may vote. Uh, and we're going to, we're going to talk about those offensive player of the year. That means a, a player who's good on offense, not the guy who was most offensive, uh, <laughs> starting pitcher reliever team of the year, play of the year, home run of the year, blooper of the year and feel good moment of the year. It feels like it has been a decade since we got to do the Milby's and it is so fun to have them back. Uh, Sam, let's, let's hear it. Give us your early Milby takeaways. Yeah, so I figure we can kind of just go through these category by category real quick. We don't have to, to dive too deep into these. But yeah, Tyler, I remember we used to do these Milby shows in the before times uh, and joke about wearing tuxes. Now, I did not pack my tux here for I'm Arizona. In, I'm in full tux right now. Yes, well, you, you are at home. I have access to your many tuxes. My many tuxes, uh, my wall of tuxedos. I, I was worried about the dry heat here in, in Arizona, so I did not wear my tuxedo. <laughs> but my shirt does have buttons. I am in somewhat formal wear. Uh, but anyways, yeah, no, it's just great to have the Milbys back uh, for this year. Eight categories, five nominees in each category. The, the great thing about the Milbys is you'll see a lot of other places will do prospect-based awards. And, you know, we work for MLB Pipeline now as well, and, and we've done that over on that side. Best hitting prospect, best pitching prospect of the year all prospect team of the year, stuff like that. This is a celebration of the minor leagues as a whole. So even on the player side, on the team side, it's not based on who has the best future potential or anything like that. It's literally just who had the best 2021 season. So starting with that, um, just look at top offensive player here real quick. We have Jose Marmalejos from the Seattle, Seattle Mariners system. MJ Melendez, the minor league home run king in 2021. Uh, Kansas City Royal System, Julio Rodriguez, friend of the show. Uh, Leo! Mariners, he's here as well. Anthony Volpe, uh, who is our MLB Pipeline hitting prospect of the year. Uh, he makes the cut. And Bobby Witt Jr., who flirted with a 30-30 season, fell one steal shy, uh, ended up with 29 steals, basically because a game was canceled in which he already had a steal. Unfortunate for him, but... Uh, still one of the best power speed combos in all of the minor leagues. So those are your five at top offensive player. Anybody stand out there to you, uh, Tyler? Yeah, I mean, Anthony Volpe's season was phenomenal. A 294, 423, 604 slash line uh, with 27 homers, 33 stolen bases. That's a guy who just did everything and did it uh, at the high A level with Hudson Valley. Uh, you know, Julio Rodriguez, I know it, it feels probably like we're biased toward him on the show just because he's so infectious and he is so talented and he is so good. And I think he's going to be so good for baseball. Julio zero is ridiculous. And he did it at two different levels, which is very impressive as well at high A Everett and then at double A Arkansas uh, and Bobby Wood jr. Another, another friend of the show um, who, when he made it to uh, the, the end of spring training and the conversation was, can we see Bobby Wood jr. In the big leagues this year, you sort of knew it was going to be a huge season for him. Um, those three guys, you know, stand out, nothing at all against MJ Melendez or Jose Marmalejos. Um, but those three guys, I don't feel like you can go wrong among any of them. Yeah, no, you re you really can't. I mean, Volpe versus Witt, I think, is the debate of yeah. the year, at least in prospect circles. Um, I, I don't know. I, you know, I, I was on the committee that voted for Volpe just because he had the higher OPS. Um, I, I think he did it at less offensive-friendly levels as well. Tampa is pretty hitter friendly for being in the low A Southeast, but still it is a league that is known to tip towards pitchers. Um, he, he ticked all the boxes this year. Bobby Witt Jr. did as well. I'm not going to tell you. It, it comes down to, do you prefer a guy who did it at the upper levels or do you prefer a guy who had slightly better rate stats? 
And I think Anthony Volpe had slightly better rate stats this year, um, which is saying something because Bobby Wood Jr. ticked all the other boxes. Um, so I might vote personally for Volpe. I think he made the most out of his plate appearances that he was given. Um, did it again at, at less hitter friendly environments. But if you want to vote for, for Witt, I'm not going to argue against you. Top starting pitcher category, five players in that one as well. Shane Boz of the Durham Bulls, the Tampa Bay Rays affiliate at AAA. Taj Bradley from also the Tampa Bay Rays organization. Uh, the young right-hander who was uh, fantastic in his season with uh, low A Charleston and high A uh, Bowling Green. Cade Cavalli in the Washington Nationals organization, another friend of the show with AAA Rochester uh, in that NAT system. Caleb Killian, who is a guy who I don't feel like we talked about nearly as much during the season, um, but was really good at the AA level with the Chicago Cubs. And I think the odds on uh, favorite to capture this award, Grayson Rodriguez, uh, the AA right-hander for the Baltimore Orioles. Grayson Rodriguez gets my vote, uh, a 2.36 ERA to go along with 161 strikeouts against 27 walks in 103 innings. 161 strikeouts in 103 innings. What? Uh, Grayson Rodriguez was absurd. Is there anybody who, who presents uh, a challenge in terms of taking this award? Yeah, I, I will just throw my hat in the ring real quick. First for Taj Bradley as yeah. the minor league ERA leader. Um, you can look at ERA many different ways. I don't think it's going to go the way of necessarily wins or the way batting average is going on the hitter side, but Nobody limited runs better than Taj Bradley this year. I think that's certainly going to stand for something. And especially when you post a one, eight, three ERA over 103 and a third innings, it's pretty good stuff. Um, so I'm going to throw my hat in the ring for him, but also Shane Boz. Uh, I'm going to bring up him. Cause I think he might've competed with Grayson Rodriguez, especially when it came to strikeout percentage, had he not gone to the Olympics with team USA. Uh, he was only limited to 78, 78 and two thirds innings because of that missed time during his time in Japan, but still a 2.06 ERA, 113 strikeouts. And this is what stands out to me. Only 13 walks. It was a big question for Shane Boz coming into the year. What was his control going to be like? Could he make the most of his really good arsenal? He did this year. There's a reason why he pitched in the playoffs. There's a reason why he was called up to the majors real late. Um, I, I think if he had slightly more innings, he would definitely be competing with Rodriguez at this point, but it's probably Rodriguez is the pick, but don't sleep on the two raised guys either. Relief pitchers, uh, Inigo Diaz from the Mississippi Braves, the Atlanta affiliated double A, and Manuel Mejia, who was with uh, Bradenton and Greensboro in the Pittsburgh organization. Uh, Dowry Moretta, who is in the Cincinnati system at triple A with the Louisville Bats. Colby White, another Tampa Bay Rays prospect, uh, who is a triple A with Durham. And Chris Wright out of the Giants organization, who is in high A with Eugene this year. Sam, among the relievers, who stands out? Yeah, I, this is always the toughest category. It's a only, really tough category this year. Not only to vote for, but also just pick the nominees. Yeah. Like, again, like I was involved in picking the nominees for this. And at, how do you slice what is a good reliever now, especially when you're looking at the entire minor leagues and yeah. trying to choose just five guys? So if there's somebody at home or who you're screaming about, like, why isn't this person considered? We probably consider them. It's just, you know, this – somebody else on this list was better in three categories or four categories, or like there's just so many ways you can slice this. Um, I think my pick might be, and again, I'm a, I'm a sucker for a good strikeout rate is Colby white. Yeah. Um, Colby white struck out 104 batters in 62 and a third innings this year, 104 and 62 and, 
in a third. He didn't have control problems, as you typically see out of relievers with high strikeout rates. He only struck, he only walked 15 in 43 appearances. Uh, he had a 144 ERA, 11 saves. Seemed to do everything. He pitched at multiple levels. He pitched at low A Charleston, high A Bowling Green, double A Montgomery, finished yep. the year at triple A Durham. That's four levels in one year. That's every single full season level that you can pitch in the Tampa Bay system. Um, so the fact that he carried strong numbers everywhere he went, I think is certainly a point in his favor. He might be my pick, but like then you got Mejia with a 0-4-2 ERA. You've got Chris Wright with a 1.00 ERA and 21 saves. It really is dealer's choice and like what is your flavor? Is there anybody here, Tyler, that you would pick instead? No, I mean, Colby White, the fact that he pitched at all four levels is really what stands out to me. Um, these other guys, the numbers are absurd for all of them. Um, you know, and Manuel Mejia put up a 0.42 ERA in 32 appearances. Um, it, it's, you can't go wrong with any of these guys, uh, any of these selections. Uh, Chris Wright, 79 strikeouts in 45 innings pitched. Um, they're all extraordinarily impressive, but what sets Colby white apart to me, at least is the fact that he pitched at all four levels this year. We hear about guys who, you know, teams don't want to have deal with in season promotions, you know, more than one time in their career. Colby white did it three times during a season. He made a jump up a level during a, a 2021 campaign. So that is, uh, extraordinarily impressive to me. Uh, the best team, this is also a, a challenging one to figure out, but I think we uh, each have a favorite. I'm not sure if it's the same one, but uh, the Akron Rubber Ducks, uh, Cleveland's AA affiliate, who finished 73 and 46, the AA Northeast champions, the Bowling Green Hot Rods, a Tampa Bay Rays affiliate, 82 and 36 for Bowling Green High A East champions, the Charleston River Dogs. Also a Tampa Bay Rays affiliate. There's a theme coming. Uh, 82 and 38, low A East champs. The Durham Bulls, 77 and 43, the regular season and AAA final stretch champions, also a Rays affiliate. And then the Quad Cities River Bandits, who were 77 and 41, the Royals affiliate, high A Central champs. Um, it is always tough to pick. I think I've said that in every category, but it's always tough to pick one of these teams. Um, but Sam, who is, uh, who's got the inside track or the vote from you? Yeah, for me, I mean, you could just go with best record here and and say it's Bowling Green, who the only advantage they have over Charleston are two fewer losses. They have the same amount of wins. Um, they both won their championships in their uh, relative leagues. But my pick is the Durham Bulls, uh, just because their dominance all year was really striking. And they did so with really prominent names, too. I mean, not that I'm overlooking Charleston and Bowling Green, there were some good race prospects there as well. Um, but Durham is where Wander Franco started his year this year. They had Vidal Brujan. They had Shane Boz, who we talked about on the show already. Uh, Josh Lowe might have been their best hitter from beginning to end this year. Uh, really strong guys coming through that team. And that's why they were so successful. And it's tough to be successful at AAA when, especially if you are good, the major league team is going to want you. Uh, and we saw that with Franco. We saw that with Bruhan at some point, although he spent most of the year at Durham. We saw, saw that with Boz at the end. Uh, the fact that the Durham Bulls stayed this good from May all the way to October, like you said, they won the AAA final stretch and did so convincingly. Uh, I, I, I can't overlook that. They would probably get my vote. Um, but Tyler, am I overlooking somebody? No, I was going to go with Durham too, um, especially because of what roster turnover and roster change does in AAA. Not to say that it doesn't do similar things at the lower levels, but when you are a team that is uh, the feeder stop 
for uh, a franchise that won the American League East this year, the the reigning American League champions, um, still technically as of this recording, uh, the the Bulls to be able to do that at the AAA level in the Rays organization is so impressive to me. And yeah, to finish out strong, the the final stretch was a, a fun and interesting thing to have done this year. Um, but to be able to win the regular season crown and then go push through the final stretch and win that title as well. Uh, really impressive stuff from Durham, so they would get my vote. Uh, the top play of the year. These are always fun because you can go watch all of these plays at MILB.com, um, and we've got five of them. And uh, there is a diving catch from Albert Almora with the Syracuse Mets from back on July 28th. Uh, Monte Harrison in the Miami Marlins organization at AAA with Jacksonville climbed the wall uh, really after making a grab and uh, and made the catch uh, in a wild one for the Jacksonville Jumbo Shrimp. Uh, Demetrius Sims with the Pensacola Blue Wahoo shortstop in the Marlins organization, uh, a diving snag up the middle and uh, got a, a double play on a crazy bouncer uh, straight through the infield. Gabe Spire had a crazy play. This is back on June 8th, uh, the lefty for Omaha, who uh, kind of like threw his glove, lost his glove going after a ball and then somehow recovered, found the ball, then found the glove and got the out at first. Uh, and Bobby Wood Jr. And this one was very late. Bobby Wood Jr. on September 29th uh, put himself into the running for the play of the year with a diving catch uh, moving back from shortstop into left field. Uh, Sam, the uh, the vote for top play uh, for you goes to whom? I'm going to say Monte Harrison. Okay. Um, I, I know there's a lot of fun stuff that you went through here, and we're going to go through these next couple ones are video categories. So we implore you to go check out right. these all for yourself on MILB.com slash fan slash Mildes. But um, Monte Harrison, I just remember when that catch happened, just how the internet blew up. And I'm not saying this is a popular, I mean, it literally is a popularity. Contest. I get that. <laughs> um, and it, but I'm not saying you should vote on it just for social engagement. But it was just so cool to see him climb the wall. And then he misjudged it. Yeah. So he still had to come back and get it. Uh, you can take away points if you want for not having to climb the wall. And he, Probably could have just jumped on his own, but the athleticism he needed to show to pull that off was incredible. And I remember thinking when we were putting together best play, I hope this is on here because it's immediately what comes to mind. And I think that's got to be a big part of this category is what, it, what is a play that sticks with you for a while? Yeah. And a lot of these are good. And maybe if you lined up Monte Harrison with a few of these others, it, it might not hold up as well, just in terms of pure highlight, but it just stuck in my memory so clearly that I can remember it without even having to hit play. And I kind of love that about it. So that's probably what I would have voted for, but you sounded surprised. Is there something else you would have picked? Uh, I went with Gabe Spire, the, the play in which it's a line drive back up the middle. Spire's a left-hander. It goes to his arm side. He flings his right hand, his gloved hand back and the ball knocks the glove off of his hand. They both pop straight up into the air. But the thing that's most impressive to me about this is Gabe Spire is able to recover. He finds the ball as it's bouncing on the, the third base side of the mound. He gets to it and then picks it up and fires a seed to first to get the out. And that's the thing that kind of baffled me most about that play because this is going to sound strange, but as a baseball player, when you're in a throwing situation – 
you're not used to throwing with two bare hands. And Game Spire goes, picks up the ball, and kind of pounds it into his right hand, his bare hand, and then flings it with the left hand and is still there to get the out. The mechanics of, like, being spun around, being dizzied off of a play like that, finding the ball, not having a piece of your equipment that you've had on every single play you have ever made in your entire life in baseball, and still getting the out on somebody moving up the first baseline that quickly. Uh, that play, it's similar to, to what you were talking about um, with Monte Harrison. I still remember when we posted that play – I watched it a dozen times being like, what, how did this happen? It was the most baffling thing I've ever seen. And I think we're, we're both sleeping a little bit because there are so many of these good plays, but that Bobby Witt jr. Catch at the end of the season is ridiculous too. Uh, Omaha was on the road at Iowa and Bobby Wood jr. I mean, this is like putting the Superman cape on. He dives like 12 feet to make that grab. Um, So that's an impressive one too. And uh, those ones, the, the, Video categories, as you were saying, um, were are all very entertaining, and uh, you can get a chance to watch all of these videos uh, as the voting goes through uh, November third. You can check them all out at milb.com/slash milbies, um, which brings us to top home run of the season. Uh, Griffin Conine, who was uh, one of the best home run hitters throughout the campaign in minor league baseball uh, with the Pensacola Blue Wahoos. He evidently uh, heard the Blue Angels getting ready to fly over the ballpark uh, on August 22nd. And uh, (laughs) he, I guess, was inspired by that and homered three pitches later, which is a little insane. Uh, Stone Garrett in the Arizona Diamondbacks organization on the final day of the season uh, was able to come through with a walk-off blast on September 19th. Uh, Sam Huff, the power that the Texas Rangers prospect has, a 502-foot home run that he hit for Frisco this year. Uh, Ninth-ranked Royals prospect Nick Lofton, who uh, hit a walk-off home run to finish off the cycle back on August 1st. First, and uh, and then Johan Mieses, who homered off of a moving train uh, for the Worcester Red Sox in the, the Boston organization back in June. Uh, not a whole lot of ballparks that have trains just meandering through the uh, the area beyond the outfield, but Yohan uh, Mieses was able to do that. Sam, your your selection. I want you to go first because I think it's it's better if I reveal mine second. Okay, interesting. Uh, I I got to go with Sam Huff, a 502 foot homer. Like, and and the fact that you know he did it in Frisco, where they could have a, a fairly accurate measurement of that. Like, 502 foot homers don't happen that often in the big leagues, and for a guy to connect on a shot like that is absurd. Um, so um, it was 114 miles an hour off the bat. Uh, it left the uh, entire ballpark in Frisco, Dr. Pepper ballpark. And uh, yeah, I, you know, I don't know. I, I can't pass up a 502 foot big old dinger slapper. Yeah. I think, I think the thing about the Sam Huff Homer is that like, you can measure it. Yeah. All these other right. things have like some other things mixed in with them and like, Oh, wasn't this cool that this happened or wasn't it neat that this was inspiration for whatever. Uh, Sam Huff, we know exactly how far it went right, and how hard he hit it. And like, you can't argue with those numbers. That being said, ah. I have to be me. Okay. I have to be myself. And Sam Huff is a great member in good standing of the good Sam's club, which you've seen plenty of, if you've watched the MLB. <laughs> uh, Sam Huff, who also helped me with the story today here in the Arizona Fall League. So I am a big Sam Huff fan. But the Worcester Red Sox are on this list. And you all have me homered off a moving train. 
I knew you were doing it. I knew you were it's, doing it's it. It's straight out of like, what was it? Triple A baseball. Remember that? Yeah. You just get to play like home run derby and it yeah. would be like in a living room or something. And you got yeah. points, hit, whatever. It, it was the real life version of that. It was video game come to life. Now you can say a 502 foot home run is video games come to life. And it very much is, but just <laughs> it's, it's the perfect celebration of polar park. And like, what makes it special is the fact that it is in the middle, middle of the city. There are going to be trains going by trains are a big part of Worcester. And it, the fact that he homered off a train that was coming through, it was not stationary. It was not just parked there to be like, oh, let's watch the game for a few innings before we finish off our final stop. Uh, homered off a moving train. It just reminded me of the, the legend of Ted Williams' home run in California in which he homered, I think it was like in San Diego, he homered onto a moving train and then the ball didn't fall off until Los Angeles. So technically the train traveled hundreds of miles, something like that. Um, there's also a a legend, um, involving, and I very much wish that we had uh, our buddy, Josh Jackson on, uh, for this, but there is also a legend involving a home run that I think Babe Ruth hit in Maine, um, back in the 1930s or forties on a a barnstorming thing where same thing, it landed on a train, uh, and some kids found it, you know, like five cities over, uh, afterwards, but yeah, so uh, there's, there's a lot of those. Yeah, if this if this Homer happened in the 1930s, like we probably hear some, you know, it was the Worcester Wallop or something. We, right. We would still right. be talking about it in that way. Now we have video of it and it's no less impressive. It just doesn't come with that legend. Uh, we have all the answers. So I, that might be mine. But if you want to vote for Sam Huff and just vote for Dingers with a capital D, I'm not going to complain. 502 feet. Dingers with a capital D. I like it. Uh, okay, best blooper, which is always uh, one of the, the most entertaining categories of the year. Um, we'll start off in Fort Wayne where uh, Moises Lugo uh, had both the home plate umpire and his catcher throw a fresh baseball back at him uh, on June 12th when he was just trying to get one, just trying to get one fresh ball. Uh, and he thankfully did not get hit by either of those, uh, but the uh, the Fort Wayne Tin Caps pitcher, dodged a, a little bit of disaster um <laughs> keith ron moss uh for high aid down east uh was on the road at myrtle beach and did a slide kind of like rube from uh major league two where he, he dove and he ended up like five feet short of the bag uh trying to steal second base not great uh <sighs> september 22nd the buffalo <laughs> bison's rookie call it call it off call it off right now rookie the bat dog ran onto the field during the game now rookie is uh a trenton legend and of course the buffalo bisons played part of their season this year in trenton new jersey the former home of the double a trenton thunder uh and so rookie got to travel late in the season go to buffalo see all his pals and he got all excited and in the middle of the game uh he ran out on the field between uh buffalo and lehigh valley and whoever the pitcher was for lehigh valley just looked like he was absolutely delighted by the whole thing so that made it even better um during a, uh, a Louisville Bats game on June 25th, uh, <laughs> an umpire was, uh, and this is uh, Takehito Matsuda, his, he was in an argument with Louisville shortstop Alfredo Rodriguez and manager Pat Kelly, uh, and his belt broke somehow. And so he was like going through this argument and eventually an ejection while putting on another belt, which is pretty impressive. And then another one that I think is uh, is a heavy contender in this category, but is probably not one that Kansas City Royals fans or the man in question would like to remember. Bobby Witt Jr. just missed home plate uh, after hitting a homer back on June 8th. And Allegedly. I remember- 
allegedly, allegedly, allegedly. Uh, it is, it is a little, uh, inconclusive. It's like, you know, Bigfoot, uh, video evidence. Uh, you can interpret the things that you want from the video. I cut this highlight because we started seeing on Twitter, uh, the, the conversation about Bobby Witt was evidently called out on appeal because he missed home plate on his little, his little, uh, the jitterbug thing that he does when he crosses home plate, which he kind of toned down after this. Um, but he, yeah, evidently, uh, was ruled to have missed home plate and his, uh, would be home run was turned into a triple. And so those are the five, um, even Patrick Mahomes cast a, uh, a vote in, uh, in the controversy after the Bobby Wood jr. Uh, incident. He, uh, well, he quote tweeted the Northwest Arkansas Nationals and just said, am I missing something? Um, he's also a Royals part owner. He is. He is. That is true. Uh, and he has a vested interest he in is Bobby Wood Jr. hitting as many home runs as possible. The king of Kansas City. Uh, Sam, what are you going with? It's rookie. It's got to be rookie. I mean, literally just go rookie. to the page so you can rewatch. I know. I've watched it like eight times already. And we say, like, I think that it's on blooper. <laughs> Look at him. It could almost go in the next category. I know. Like, I was going to say it really should be in the next category. Yeah, you could go with it either way. It's, just, it's almost more fun to celebrate just a fun moment in blooper than it is like look at this great crazy screw up oh yeah guy Uh, colton eastman by the way was the pitcher colton eastman it was just it was handled well by all involved it was it very much was uh colton eastman looked delighted by the whole thing you know just stepped off watched rookie run around rookie crossed over the mound ran in front of him stood there for a second i was like oh i gotta get out of here and (laughs) bolted off to the third base side it's the cutest moment of the season the cutest yes. moment of the season, okay. and it, and everybody involved, like <laughs> beyond that, just we're, like we've heard about bat dog controversies in the past. I'm not going to name names, but there are stories out there of certain teams not liking bat dogs. Uh, this one was just like, no, dude, you, it's fine. You didn't hurt anybody. You didn't take a ball out of play. You didn't screw up play in any way. You made the game more fun. And what are we here to do at the end of the day? Is have fun for for three hours. So um, happy that rookie, you know had his moment in the sun and he'll continue to have more down in Trenton and hopefully be back up in Buffalo at some point next year. I'm sure he'll be invited back. Absolutely. Um, all right. Our final category, the top feel good moment of the year in minor league baseball. Uh, we start in Amarillo uh, where the sod poodles had a pregame catch on the field on father's day and a young sod poodles fan named destiny presented a sign with a question uh, asking now her father, Jesus, uh, if he would adopt her. And uh, that was a very cool moment. Uh, Sod Poodles MC Dennis Humphrey, as it's noted in our description, also kind of had trouble containing his emotions in that moment. I would have been a wreck if I was on the field trying to MC that thing. Um, the Fresno Grizzlies, uh, who do a, a mini Parker promo, Parker, the, the bear, their mascot, they do a mini Parker promo in which little kids in tiny little Parker costumes run around the field. Um, August 7th, one of them was running uh, a little bit behind the pack. And so uh, Cruz Gonzalez, who was the MC that night, uh, <laughs> scooped up the last, the trailing mini Parker and decided, eh, we got to get this kid uh, over to the rest of them. Uh, in Hudson Valley, uh, the Renegades Disability Dream and Do Day, known as D3 Day, an annual sporting event, uh, which is held on the field in Hudson Valley for children and young adults with different challenges and special needs. Um, this year, D3 organizer Dave Stevens helped a blind participant hit the ball before they rounded the bases to score a run together, uh, and the celebration was pretty amazing. Um, in Richmond, the Flying Squirrels, 
played host to Air Force Master Sergeant David Bradley Rogers, uh, who had been deployed for almost eight months. Uh, His 10 first pitches that he received in disguise were capped off by two thrown by his kids, uh, Carson and Dallas. And of course he took off a catcher's mask at the end uh, to surprise his kids. And the final one, uh, Drew Robinson, who made so many headlines before the season, of course, um, with the San Francisco Giants organization, he lost his right eye in a suicide attempt uh, in 2020 and uh, made his way back to professional baseball, uh, played this year at the AAA level. He has since retired from baseball. He's taken on a role uh, in the Giants front office. But uh, on June tw- or on July 20th, uh, with his family in the stands, players uh, stepped out of the dugout. And before his first at bat in his last game, uh, he got a standing ovation. He has now transitioned into a role as a mental health advocate with the San Francisco Giants. Um, this is one of those categories where I think all of these should just get get the the award. They're all pretty amazing. Yeah, I don't think there's any point to us trying to argue one yeah. over the other. Yeah. Here. They're all uh, pretty great. They're all good. Like vote pretty great. once every time. Yeah. Honestly. Because yeah. especially after 2020, when we didn't have a lot yeah. of feel-good moments, especially in baseball, um, unless you know, we're a Los Angeles Dodgers fan, which all the power to you. But uh it, it was just so nice to have these moments back to us Absolutely. and remind us what minor league baseball really is. It's a celebration of the sport and it's a celebration of community. Um, and all of these speak to that in many ways. And uh, I, I was really touched that there were multiple nominees for this category. Some unfortunately got cut and I wish we could have expanded this maybe more than any of the others to 20, cause they could have gotten that deep. Um, but, you know, here's to more of this next year. Uh, this is just a taste of what minor league baseball can be vote. However you want. We're not going to tell you how to do it in this category, but do watch all five videos at, uh, yes, at the yes. Milby site and uh, make your heart, you know, grow three sizes. Uh, so that is what is available for you right now to vote on at MILB.com slash Milby's. Um, and it's a, it's a ton of fun. Join in, give us a, a tweet, send us an email, let us know how you voted and, uh, have some fun with it. Uh, we're continuing along show before the show straight through next. Rolling along on this week's episode of the show before the show, Benjamin Hill coming up here in our next segment, but uh, we've got some more news from minor league baseball this week. Uh, A a story that Sam wrote up so beautifully at MILB.com about a new partnership between minor league baseball and Marvel, uh, a new three-year partnership, which promises a ton of fun for minor league baseball fans across the country. MILB and Marvel Entertainment announcing the promotional three-year partnership on Wednesday at the Chicago Museum of Science and Industry, which is currently home to the Marvel Universe of Superheroes exhibit. Uh, Sam, give us the lowdown on what this partnership means for, for MILB and for Marvel fans. Yeah, so this is, you know, one of the great things about minor league baseball is that theme nights are a constant thing. Right. Like every, every year we, we love trying to see how people are, how teams are bringing people out to the ballpark, um, what they're doing to tie those in. Sometimes they try to do it with brands. We had that thing you do night in Erie. Uh, we talked a little bit to them about like what it is to, to get rights for something like that. This is essentially guaranteeing that a lot of clubs, dozens of clubs will have rights to Marvel. Uh, Marvel being one of the biggest brands in all of entertainment right now because of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, So this is a three-year agreement. This first year, 
as part of that agreement, all of these clubs that are listed on our site at MLB.com, uh, 96 of them, will get to have one superhero theme night involving Marvel characters. Uh, they'll have specialized jerseys, which is a big deal, as always. I'm sure those will maybe be auctioned off or sold or something. Um, but uh, the mind runs wild at what type of specialized jerseys a lot of these teams could have. Uh, I, I'm really excited to see some of them, especially those that have like Marvelized team names already. Uh, thinking of like the Lake Elsinore Storm. Are we going to get a Storm jersey for the Storm? That would be pretty cool. The Lake mm-hmm. County Captains. Do they go Captain America? Do they go Captain Marvel? I don't know. We'll, we'll see. Uh, the Aberdeen Ironbirds, the Lehigh Valley Iron Pigs. Are we just going to get Iron Man jerseys from those teams? Probably. That would be my guess. That would make a lot of sense. But again, the Marvel Universe is is big and wide and this isn't just the movies this is the comic books as well so you are going to get access to the x-men even though that exists as part of a different cinematic universe for now uh so this is really really exciting and the great thing about it is it is a three-year partnership so this first year it's going to be based solely on theme nights there is going to be a comic book aspect there are going to be comic books passed out uh at all 96 of these ballparks they're going to be involved something called the defenders of the diamond and that's what the run of comics book comic books are going to be called fascinating to see what that's going to mean but then there's year two and year three and marvel and minor league baseball are promising some sort of surprises what those are yet i don't know i I wish i could tell you i would love to know myself uh i wish there was a mid-credits sting that could kind of tease us with this but they didn't give us that so you know stay tuned as always uh to see what that could be uh, but I am excited to see this come to ballparks. I, the reaction that we got on Twitter was pretty much positive. I mean, a lot of big Marvel fans out there who would love to see their favorite characters represented uh, in baseball in some way, what better place than minor league baseball. So the fact that this is 96 clubs, that's a lot of buy-in uh, from full season teams right now. Uh, and I can't wait to see it actually put into motion in 2022. And uh, baseball continues here in 2021. The Arizona Fall League, as we noted earlier, has opened. And uh, that brings us to a discussion of why Sam is in Arizona. We, we alerted you to it earlier, and we haven't even talked about the AFL once yet. Uh, you've gotten a chance to, to check out some games already. Uh, we've gotten stories up. We've gotten uh, some good highlights already out of the AFL. Uh, give us the lowdown, Sam. It's, this is your first trip to the AFL, correct? This is my first trip to the AFL. That's fantastic. You are normally Mr. Arizona. Um, So it feels very weird that I am here and you are not. I know. That that makes me very sad. Um, You you were at the Futures game this year. So I guess that's swapped. We have swapped. We did did a little Freaky Friday thing. Yes. Um, So hopefully in 2022, we can both be at all of these events. Wouldn't that be lovely? But um, but yeah, the Arizona Fall League, it's it's so great to have it back. It's another thing we lost in 2020. Uh, it's getting a lot of these prospects back on the field, ex- in some cases extending their seasons. Um, I'm thinking of Spencer Torkelson. I talked to him yesterday and I was just like, do you have anything left in the tank? Like This is your first full season. Yeah. You've been playing since May. You had your first spring training. You played a full season. He wasn't injured. He's not making up for lost time. He played three different levels. This is his fourth team. He's like, yeah, I think so. I've got plenty left. Like, I'm excited to be here. We'll see how it goes. He's looked good early. I can tell you that pitchers are pitching around him. They don't really want to face him. Mackenzie Gore, who I'll speak to in a second here, uh, even said, like, 
we know he's the best hitter here. And Mackenzie Gore fired off his two fastest pitches against Spencer Torkelson, basically because he wanted to match fire with fire. He hit 98 miles an hour, knowing that Torkelson can turn around any velocity. Um, so I'm fascinated to see how long Spencer Torkelson can keep this up. Brett Beatty, I've seen him twice so far. He reached in his first eight plate appearances uh, here in the Arizona Fall League. There were some walks mixed in. There was a hit by pitch, but there were also some really hard hit balls, a, a double uh, today, some good pieces of hitting going the other way. You know, as, as somebody who has really dug into the Mets system this year, I knew he was a complete hitter. Uh, didn't quite see it as much at Binghamton as we did in Brooklyn, but the fact that he's bringing it already is is certainly incredible. And the fact that we're going to be able to get more exit velocities out of him uh, since he will be playing at Salt River as his home will be so much fun to see both him and Torkelson on the same team. Those guys seem to be, be getting along really well. Every time I look in that dugout, they seem to be talking to each other, both corner infielders, a lot of info and, and philosophies to share there. So that's going to be really fascinating. And, I, and I'm excited to see what, what else is to come of the Mackenzie Gore experience. Uh, pitched five innings in his opener, gave up two earned runs, both runs scored on a Spencer Torkelson double, um, but he had retired Torkelson twice before that. Gore's really working on his command. He'll say the command's always been there, but it has certainly wavered uh, since his really, really special season in 2019. Reason why he wasn't called up last year is he was working through some things. They even sent him all the way down to the complex league this year uh, to work on his hands. He said the high leg kick is still kind of there. I think it's not as pronounced as it once was, but he's not moving the hands as much. He's trying to keep the hands much more static. And I think that's going to help him with all of his pitches. Uh, it seemed to the other day, the fact that he was hitting velocity, even he seemed to be excited about that. Um, so nobody really needs it more. A strong Arizona fall league, I would say, than Mackenzie Gore. Got off to a good start, like I said. Um, not quite a quality start because he didn't get through six innings, but was on well on his way to do that. And if he can keep this up, then his stock will be – pointing back up right now. We don't know what to make of it because we just haven't seen enough of it in 2021. Now we will. And I'm excited for that opportunity. All of Sam's coverage uh, as well as coverage from our other reporters down at the Arizona fall league is at MLB pipeline and also at MILB.com. And uh, that sends us to uh, our good buddy, Benjamin Hill. Got a chance to catch up with Ben earlier today. He's coming up next. But while Sam is out gallivanting around the Southwest, it is uh, just me and our good pal, Benjamin Hill, here for this segment of the uh, show before the show. What's going on, Ben? Good to see you. I'm doing well, Tyler. It's good to see you as well. And uh, not to immediately start nitpicking grammar or word choice, but you said it's just me and our good pal. Ah, I was speaking about Sam in absentia. Ah, Sam and Absentia. That should be the name of a, a sitcom or something. Sam and Absentia. So Sam is being movie. Sam's being tried for a crime. Sam was in Iceland last week. Maybe he like, you know, he stepped off a trail in a national park and now he's being tried in Absentia. Sam and Absentia. Sam and Absentia about the stuff he got up to in Iceland at a bachelor <laughs> party. And if you know Sam, I can't even imagine the hijinks those guys got up to up there eating seafood and reading books. At, yeah, reading books. <laughs> Drinking warm mugs of tea and such wild yeah. times. <laughs> yeah, introspective conversations about where they are in their responsible adult lives. 
<laughs> that's why we love him so much um and uh we are uh, a trio that shares our love and fascination with all things minor league baseball and there are two stories that ben has up at milb.com that are uh right in the in the perfect wheelhouse of uh the stories that ben gets to tell from ballparks around the country and um these two are both from fredericksburg virginia the home of the new fred Nats. Uh, who, of course, opened play here in 2021 as an affiliate of the Washington Nationals in their new ballpark. And um, let's start this conversation, Ben, with uh, a story that we were talking uh, before we started recording about kind of the reason, the thing that drew you to this story. For so many things that we write for the site, it seems as though baseball is the main element of someone's life. And this story, it's like you wrote about someone's life and baseball was just kind of the pivot point that got them to that life uh, in a, an usher who is currently a, a member of the Fred Nats organization, but his baseball roots go back way, way further than that. Tell us about Wesley Williams. This is a cool story. Yeah. You know, Tyler, like you said, um, still writing some uh, on the road ballpark stories. Um, you know, anytime I visit even though I visited uh, Fred Nats ballpark in late July, you know, I, I, anytime I go to a ballpark, I, try to get stories that I can kind of stash in my back pocket and uh, sprinkle them out over the uh, upcoming months. And uh, I'm now almost at the end of my stash and, and really glad that I got to write these pair of stories in Fredericksburg. And yes, one of them is about uh, Wesley Williams, an usher for the Fredericksburg Nationals in their inaugural season, which was this past season, 2021. The Fredericksburg Nationals began as a franchise in Alexandria, Virginia, not too far away from Fredericksburg. They were the Alexandria Dukes. From there, they went on to Woodbridge, Virginia, where they played um, eventually as the Potomac Nationals, and then they went to Fredericksburg. So this franchise, now the Fredericksburg Nationals, started out as the Alexandria Dukes. And a pitcher for the Alexandria Dukes in 1980 they were a co-op team, meaning they didn't have one major league affiliate. They had several major league affiliates. It that was is a, something. I don't even know the last time that we would have seen a co-op team in the minors. I think maybe in the 90s, but it has been a very long time. You know, that's a question, and I know we have uh, listeners who love those sort of questions, and I know I've looked that up in the past. Yeah. I believe that maybe one or two trickled into the early 21st century. In today's minor league baseball, especially after all this reorganization and realignment, the idea of an affiliated minor league team being not a, not a proper affiliate, but just being like, ah, hey, the Orioles have some extra guys and the Rangers have some extra guys and the Phillies have extra guys. And we'll send them to this team in Alexandria, Virginia, who played a ballpark that's essentially uh, you know attached uh, or behind a uh, public elementary school and the locker rooms are like in the school, <laughs> like a totally different uh, era of minor league baseball. But we dig- digress. Uh, The Alexandria Dukes, now the Fredericksburg Nationals, were a co-op team in 1980. A man named Wesley Williams, originally from Ohio, pitched there, a 28th round draft pick of the Texas Rangers. He spent his third and final minor league season in 1980 with the Alexandria Dukes. Didn't pitch that well. The team was horrible. They played at a horrible ballpark. They were a co-op team. Wesley Williams got released after the season. But now, 40 years later, 41 years later, he is an usher for the same franchise that were the Alexandria Dukes are now the Fredericksburg Nationals. And he's not from the Virginia area. And so it's like in talking to him, because all I was told is, oh, this guy used to pitch minor league baseball. Now he's an usher. Go talk to him. But I found it interesting. So if you're not from Virginia, 
and your first association was just having a horrible minor league season with a bad co-op team, you wouldn't think you'd establish your life there. But Wesley Williams met a woman, and that was his quote. You know, it's, it's how so many good stories start. You know, met a girl. So as he's pitching for the Alexandria Dukes, he, he meets a girl. Her name is Sue. I mean, she's a, a woman who uh, is in the Secret Service. And after he gets released, he's like, I'm going to stick around and be with Sue, this woman I met in the Secret Service. They eventually get married. He eventually works for the Secret Service for 23 years, then 14 more years with Homeland Security, retires after 2019. And then, hey, I'm retired. I love baseball. I'll get a part-time job. He's now an usher for the Fredericksburg Nationals, the same franchise where he got released as a member of the Alexandria Dukes following the 1980 season. Um, so that sounded a little convoluted, but it's not very convoluted. It's just about a guy who, who works for the same team that cut him 40 years earlier, but he had a whole life in between. And that instance you know, set the course of his whole life. And I think all of us in life can point to various things in our lives. Like, wow, if I didn't meet this person at this time, or if I hadn't, you know, gone to that party and met so-and-so and that person then later got me a job, you know, there's just all these crazy circumstances in life. And I kind of like tying that to minor league baseball, where you have a bad minor league season, but the team you happen to be in, uh, be playing for the location you happen to be ends up being your home for the rest of your life just because of the circumstances that transpired over a several months span, you know, during a summer when you were 22 years old. Yeah, it's, it's, it is, it's very much a, a cool rom-com story that you could apply uh, to many, I would imagine many stories in minor league baseball, and they are very neat when we get to come across them. And um, it's cool too, because uh, you got that story up on the side about Wesley Williams. And then you've got another story about uh, another member of the Fred Nats family, uh, Zhang Cheng Wu, who is at the beginning of his baseball life, a uh, guy who's just getting started out in his career in pro ball, uh, working in a front office, but a much more unorthodox story than the generic front office employee story yeah absolutely and tyler you know i should have known you being a uh, a broadcaster not just a broadcaster but a broadcaster with you know, global international experience uh you pronounced his name much better than i could even though i wrote a story about him and spoke with him um if you could say it one more time because it's better than i will be able to do it and i'll say i'm not positive that i'm getting it correct but i believe that it is Zhang cheng wu uh, and his, his family name is Wu W U. Um, but his first name, John Chang, I believe that would be how it's pronounced. The thing that's interesting is, uh, their tonal languages, uh, in, you know, China, where he is from, and we'll get to that And Taiwan. I've done a lot of baseball games with, with players and, you know, Chinese Taipei rosters and all that. And the way they say their names is so different from just like, you know, you could say Benjamin Hill and I could say Tyler Mon, but with names and tonal languages, depending on how you say it, it kind of changes the, the meaning of it. So that's a long way of saying I probably butchered it, but I believe it's Zhang Cheng Wu. But you gave it a, a far better effort than I, I would have been able to. And uh, Zhang Cheng Wu is the director of production for the low A Fredericksburg Nationals. And, you know, in that capacity, you know, by production, we mean, you know, video production in a lot of ways. Um, helping to produce, uh, you know, the streaming games, as well as just producing throughout the year, all sorts of video content for the team. And uh, that's his job, director of production. I'd actually met him earlier in the season when I was in Kannapolis. The Kannapolis Cannonballers happened to be uh, playing the Fredericksburg Nationals, and I was standing on the concourse, and two guys came up to me and were like, hey, Ben, uh, and one of them was Wu. 
And he goes by Wu in the U.S. because people like me, he knows, won't pronounce his name very well. So even though Wu is his last name, everyone uh, knows him as Wu. And, uh, you know, he introduced himself, said he worked for the Fredericksburg Nationals. And uh, I thought, hey, cool, nice to meet you. But then before I went to Fredericksburg, I was looking at the staff page and uh, read his bio a little bit. And I was like, oh, that guy I met in Kannapolis. He's like literally from China and lived there until age 24. So then when I went to Fredericksburg, I said, I got to learn this guy's story. So Wu, he is from Nanning, China, N-A-N-N-I-N-G, which is in southern China, tropical climate near the border with Vietnam. And uh, baseball is not much of a sport out there, virtually unknown. And Wu didn't even know about baseball until he was watching an anime series that's very popular. Um, it's translated into English as Touch, but it's about Japanese baseball and uh, the Japanese high school tournament, uh, the Koshin. Am I saying that right, Tyler? Uh, tournament. Yes, you are. Um, so he sees this Japanese anime living in southern China, never seen anyone play baseball, never seen a baseball game, never seen a baseball field. But something about the story and the way it was incorporated in this anime and the game really sparked his interest. He asked his mom to find him a baseball team he could play on. And his mom was like, I don't I can't find any baseball around this area. And uh, so baseball became this thing he just really wanted to know. And uh, fast forward, it stayed in his mind. Fast forward, uh, he's using the Internet in 2012 and his first baseball games he ever watched were you know, essentially year old uploads of the 2011 world series. So he's teaching himself baseball, which he only knows through a Japanese anime um, by watching um, old videos or old game broadcasts of the 2011 world series, which of course was a crazy world series between the St. Louis Cardinals and the Texas Rangers. He's learning the game through that falling in love, especially because that was such a dramatic series. He, he knew what he saw in the anime. He loves the game even more now through uh learning about the game online, goes to college in Nanning, um, local college, joins a club team, gets to play baseball a little bit. He said it was mostly slow pitch softball and mostly on soccer fields because there weren't any baseball fields around, but he gets to play a little bit, at least meets a few people who know the game, gets a job at a local TV station after graduating. And he said when year two came around uh, at that job, he's like, oh no, every story we're doing is just a different version of the story we did the year before. And, you know, you're a young guy out of college and you, you want to offer something in the world and you have a job that seems a little dead end in your early 20s, you want to get out. And he said to himself, well, what do I love more than baseball? And uh, so he applied to postgraduate uh, sports journalism programs, ended up going to uh, Indiana University, living in Indianapolis, getting a degree there, and then attending the 2017 baseball winter meetings. He said he sat at a table the whole time. Everyone else was getting calls and interviews, and he wasn't getting any. But on the last day of the meetings, the Tulsa Drillers got in touch with him, gave him a video production internship. So now this guy from Nanning, China, is living in Tulsa. Um, had a minor league baseball stadium and um, getting it done there. He does that for two years, but can't be an intern for a third year, uh, you know, for another team to hire him. That team has to go through the visa process. And, you know, a lot of teams, um, you know, don't want to go through that for various reasons. And he's uh, hoping the, the Tulsa drillers putting a good word for him and the Fredericksburg nationals come through and get him a job. And now here he is uh, on this baseball journey, a guy who lived in China uh, through age 24 came to the U.S., found a job in the U.S., and is now working for a minor league baseball team. And um, I just found it was a really interesting career path. And 
again, kind of with minor league baseball, you know, telling the story of this usher, Wesley Williams, telling the story of this front office employee. Um, I'd like to think there's a bit of a, a universality in the whole thing of just finding these uh, you know, unique stories, but things that you can relate to are just over the, the many different ways uh, your life path can go. So if we're getting pretentious, that's the little theme of uh, what we're talking about here. And, you know, I just wish I could write about everybody. You know, I live in New York City. You know how many stories are out there? But I don't get paid to do it. And I don't know where to start. That's what I like about minor league baseball. I'm in this little like bubble of like, okay, everyone in this place is a story idea. And it makes it easier to find uh, people to write about it. And I get paid. So those two things uh, keep me telling these minor league baseball stories, but I do love it as a self-contained ecosystem to find people to talk about, to celebrate and uh, to write these unique stories. And uh, I'm almost out of my 2021 uh, on location supply, but it's been a pleasure. You know, it's been a weird year in a lot of ways, but uh, still glad I'm able to do these stories. Well, these are uh, two of the best and um, some some bonus content in the story about uh, Zhang Cheng Wu. He's got uh, an adorable dog named Vandy, and there's some good Vandy pictures in the story, which I'm always into. Uh, I also would just love to know how Wu's parents try to explain to their friends like what he's doing in the U.S. Like being from a city where people don't really know baseball and like, oh, he moved to America and he's working in this weird sport. And he's doing like video content. And he has a dog now and he lives in a place in Virginia that we've never heard of. And like, I just imagine at the family gatherings, family friends are like, what? what is what he's doing? What now? Yeah, I actually asked him that not just family, but friends. Um, and that his answer didn't make into the story, but it was essentially more because in a lot of ways it was a long pause and shaking his head, just kind of like, how, where do you, how do I explain this to people? Yeah. I mean, Hey, you and I are from the United States and baseball is the national pastime, but Tyler, I'm sure, you know, when you explain to people and certainly when I explain to people what I do about minor league baseball and what I do within minor league baseball, that confuses native born Americans very easily about what minor league baseball is, how it works and to, to remove, but, and that's what, among people who have context for at least a semblance of what it is, and certainly knowing what baseball is, can you imagine explaining minor league baseball and the intricacies of it and how that whole world is set up to people from a culture where baseball itself is foreign? Yeah. Impossible. Yeah. Yeah. It is fascinating stuff. And, uh, and just such a cool story about, you know, how a kid from Nanning, China comes uh, into contact with the game of baseball and falls in love with the game of baseball. And I love the the description of him watching those games from the 2011 world series. It's like the things you used to hear about, like people who would fall in love with baseball, you know, behind the iron curtain in the eighties, because they were watching VHS tapes of a world series from 10 years earlier or something like that, like those kinds of things. Um, and this is updated for the modern era. And that is a, an awesome story. And it is up at the site at MILB.com right now, Benjamin Hill, our ballpark guide series continues. Uh, I'm going to be diving in with some ballpark guides soon. I know Joshua Jackson, our good pal, is diving in with some ballpark guides soon. Um, what do you have uh, most recently up on the ballpark guides? The most recent one that went up was uh, LP Franz Stadium, um, home of the Hickory Crawdads. And uh, I knew this, but in writing the ballpark, you know, I just wanted to mention it because LP Franz, like, who is that? And he was the name of a uh, local Pepsi bottler, 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 a local Pepsi bottler. <laughs> who uh, donated money towards the construction of the ballpark. And that is who that ballpark is named for. But Hickory was one of the ballparks I was able to visit this season. So uh, even though it's not a new ballpark, I'm trying to write these ballpark guides based on places I've been recently. So my photos and information is as fresh as possible. 
Uh, so uh, that's the latest one. And I'm working as we speak right now. Well, not as we speak, because I'm giving my full attention to you in this conversation. I appreciate course, it. But, um, no, anytime. And uh, I am working on, uh, what am I working on? Segra Stadium, the Fayetteville Woodpeckers. And that will be the next edition of the Ballpark Guide. The Ballpark Guide, of course, is a long-term project um, dedicated to writing uh, comprehensive uh, write-ups of every single minor league ballpark. And uh, they will be put together all in one place, ticketing links, all sorts of links, your one-stop shop for planning a uh, minor league baseball road trip. And like Tyler said, uh, he and other people will be contributing uh, as the off season goes on. And it's a lot of work, but I think the finished product's going to be really great, especially when it all comes together and lives together in one place. I will say I'm one of those weird people who's very into like old timey things. And I do wish that one thing that was still around these days is people who went by just random initials more often, like an LP Franz. I think it'd be cool to go by TS Mon. I think that'd be neat. What would yours be? B BG, BG Hill, BG Hill, BG Hill is a fantastic, like, ah, old timey sports writer, BG Hill, man. <laughs> yeah. Well, Hey, we could, we could do it. We can bring that back. You're right. Because, uh, people going by their initials is basically came has been reduced to mostly a bunch of people with J. Is exactly. My nephew he's JJ. It's ridiculous. Why do they get yeah. to co-opt all of them? Yeah. I don't know what it is with the it's, it's unbelievable J's or else use your full name. We gotta, we gotta go against this uh, dominant school of thought and you're right. I'm with you. We gotta yeah. be like LP Franz. Like right. maybe we should become Pepsi bottlers. There might be good money in that, but beyond that, we need imagine. to go by our initials. Yeah. And uh, that was something more common back then. The same way, and probably not related, you know, the phone numbers would start with like two letters and then the right after that. Right. Like, yeah. Uh, I'm going to call K, I'm going to call LP at KL4630, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> My mom, there also used to be, uh, they would have a word for the first two letters. So my mom always used to say that their phone number was like El Dorado 97642, whatever it was, because it was EL. So would that be? three five nine and four six five and like yeah why don't we get away from that because it's nonsensical it's ridiculous yeah, um, when does that stop when has that stopped us before i know after these and you are already on track you can do another one of the old-timey things that i love is you can start a business and name it benjamin hill and son now that's, you could do that, that. Is right. you could be bg right. hill and son that's right i mean I don't know how much decision-making Harry's going to have in it for a little while since he's like, you know, a small baby, but still. Yeah. He'll be like, dad, I never asked to be the <laughs> and son in this business. I never asked to be the and son in your Pepsi bottler business, but I'd say, son, I did it for you. Exactly. I bottled all this Pepsi, just like LP Franz, <laughs> so that you could have the best life possible. Oh man. Well, you can find Benjamin Hill on Twitter at Ben's biz. Uh, you can check out the stuff at MILB.com right now. Uh, and because he is not here to defend himself, SP Dykstra, I'm sure would have also <laughs> loved, uh, this, this nonsensical, uh, little jazz playing of ours here. This is a, this is a fun one. Thanks, Ben. Yeah. Great talking to you, Tyler. And, uh, SP Dykstra was here in absentia. this podcast to bring you another thrilling edition of ghosts of the miners now here's your correspondent and host joshua jackson (laughs) 
Welcome back to Ghosts of the Miners, in which all of you out there in Radioland must identify the legitimate historical ball club hiding amidst the fraudulent pair. One came in first place. The others came to me in fever dreams. In the last segment, I asked you which of the following minor league baseball teams did at one time exist. A. The Greensboro Grumps. B. The Superior Blues. C. The Downers Grove Downers. If you guessed A or C, boy are you red in the face. The correct answer is B. The Superior Blues, who were one of the better things to come out of Superior, Wisconsin, playing in two iterations of the Northern League from the 1930s into the 1950s. Although unaffiliated from the circuit's modern founding in 1933 until 1937, the Blues made their way through the rainbow of parent clubs, first as a Browns affiliate, then becoming the Dodgers Blues, then joining the White Sox system. The Blues had reason to feel good out the gate, winning a title in their inaugural season. That 33 club, managed by infielder-outfielder Dick Rip Wade, was superior any way you shook it. The first pro team of Maury Arnovich, those blues also had Walter Johnson. But not that Walter Johnson. They did have Dizzy Dean, yes, that Dizzy Dean, in 1942, although it was a down-and-out version of that Dizzy Dean, as Dizzy spun two innings for the blues in his penultimate professional season. In 1952, the Blues painted the town red after trouncing the league. Not even an Eau Claire Bears team that featured Henry Aaron equaled superior that year. Bill Cash, a standout catcher and infielder for the Negro National League's Philadelphia Stars for many years, starred as the veteran for the Blues, and Gene Collins, who'd cracked the famous Kansas City Monarchs roster in 47 and 48, was feeling blue for 31 games, while 10-year minor leaguer Dan Phelan slugged 20 homers. By the end of the 55 campaign, the Blues were short of green. That autumn, reporting a sale that ultimately fell through, the Euron, Euronite, and Daily Plainsman revealed, Superior's indebtedness is believed to be about $7,000. The league has given team president Tom Fleming until November 18 to dispose of the franchise. And that's how Superior went under. Now, on to the question for next time. Which of these shipping-inclined nine played in the minors of yesteryear? A. The Bellingham Box Builders. B. The Lafayette Shrimp Freezers. C. The Hutchinson Salt Packers. Want to know the answer? Check the mail. Or tune into the next Ghosts of the Miners. But for now, you'll have to excuse me. My producer, Ben Hill, is at a pumpkin patch, and some strange children have seized his head. That will do it for this week's episode of the show before the show. Big thanks to uh, Benjamin Hill and to Josh Jackson for joining us as well. We, uh, of course, have no Milb TV games uh, to plug for you, but you can follow all the Arizona Fall League uh, coverage at MLB Pipeline and at the Fall League site as well. Um, and it is currently uh, 8 10 Pacific time. And they are in the sixth inning, Dodgers and Giants. And we don't know who wins. Darren Ruff just tied it up. So Sam and I are both going to go watch. Yeah, I was going to say, don't tweet at us to tell us who won. <laughs> don't spoil it. We're still waiting. One thing, 
One thing I want to say though, Tyler, real quick, because we yeah. never actually talk about Ghost of the Miners on the other. That is end true. That is true. All of you have now heard Ghost of the Miners. We know what Josh recorded. We love it every week. One thing I said in the email when he was sending like the script for it, it's the Superior Blues. What do you think the Superior Blues would look like? Ooh, as a logo. Ooh, that's a good I'm sure question. I'm sure it's probably going to be some, you know, like St. Louis Blues. Right. It's just like a musical note, that kind of thing. But I just love the idea of the whole point of it being like Lake Superior, the blues, the blues of the lake. Like, how would you you translate that to a hat? That's a very good question. And it's Blind Willie Johnson who plays the music uh, behind Ghost of the Miners this week. I wanted to go with old blues um, to uh, compliment the superior blues. Yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, you know, they're one of the one of the pioneering teams of the National League was the Hartford Dark Blues, um, which is also the name of my favorite Jack's Mannequin song. Um, Just dark blue. Uh, Yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, you know, we only have a meager amount of teams that are named just after colors. The Reds are the only one that pop immediately to mind. Right. The Cardinal, I guess, Stanford, kind of. Um, But yeah, that's, oh, now I'm going to have to brainstorm on this. What I think we're going to have to do this offseason, and I, I constantly said that, and now we're at the offseason. So yeah. We're going to have to start making good on some of these ideas. But I would love to go back to some of the ghost picks that we've yeah. had. And each just take one. And we have to start the franchise oh, I in like 2022. It. I like it. And what what would it look like now? I like it. I'm, I'm writing this down. Maybe me, you, Ben, and Josh can all get on it. and We'll, we'll each t- take a team. Okay. I'm into it sometime in December. It's a very fun idea. I need to learn how to be an artist before then. <laughs> you speaking as the person who's got how many hats behind I do. you. That doesn't mean that I'm them. artistic. It just means I like other people's artistic. Yeah, you, you like them and you also judge them harshly. <laughs> oh man. Well, a big thanks to, uh, to those dudes, to Ben and Josh and uh, he's Sam. I'm Tyler. We will talk to you next week. Oh, 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 oh,